0: 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 to 23. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: So in the uh, very famous race between the tortoise and the hare, uh, the ref says, on your mark, it's a go. The gun fires off, and in seconds, the hare darts and sprints out, and and the hare is, like, in seconds, like 400 meters ahead of the turtle. The hare turns around, and he sees, like, the turtle slowly trudging along, and he chuckles to himself at how slow the turtle is. So the hare decides to take a nap. Uh, The problem was when the hare woke up from the nap, he looked behind him, and lo and behold, the tortoise wasn't there anymore. And so he looked ahead, and the tortoise was now crossing the finish line. Now, there are lots of lessons from this children's story that we all know. Uh, From the perspective of the uh, tortoise, uh, what is the lesson? Slow and steady wins the race. But what is the lesson from the hare's perspective? I think the lesson is this. It doesn't matter how you start so much as it matters how you finish. So let me give you another example. Let's say a uh, stunt plane takes off, starts doing all these crazy loops and twists in the air, but as it's about to land, it crashes. When it crashes, is anyone gonna remember the loops and the stunts that it did? No, the only thing people are going to remember is the crash landing. It doesn't matter how you start, but it does matter how you finish. And my intent in sharing these two stories about the tortoise and the hare and the the stunt plane is not to feed our culture's infatuation with failure porn. That is not my intention. But I do think that we all know celebrities and people in our own circles who started well but did not finish well. Now, the challenge for us as young people, including myself, is that we have like 30, 40, 50 years of our life left And here am I talking about finishing well. I mean, I can't even get through the week. I can't even finish the week. How can I even think about finishing my life well? So I think if there's one principle that can help us not only finish the week well, but finish our lives well, it is this principle. How you live in private, it has to match how you live in public. Let me just say that one more time. How you live in private, it has to match how you live in public. This is what integrity uh, is all about. And it, as we take a look at 1 Chamu- uh, Samuel chapter 15 today, uh, we're taking a look at the life of King Saul. And as we take a look at his biography, we see a man who started life well, but his life did not finish well. In chapter 10, Uh, of our story, Uh, Samuel is just 30 years old. He's a fearful, timid, you can even say kind of coward uh, that is about to be uh, inaugurated as king. But by the time we get to chapter 15, 42 years of his life have already gone by. And by chapter 15, Saul is a old 72-year-old man. When we take a look at chapter 10, Saul is a nobody that comes from a nowhere town. But by the time we get to chapter 15, uh, he's tasted money, power, wealth. And as a result of that, he eventually loses himself and he loses his way. So the question for us is this. How can we make sure we don't lose our way? How can you make sure you don't lose yourself? So take a look with me at verse 10 and 11. And it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel... I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. So let me just pause right there. So Samuel uh, helped coronate Saul, the first king of Israel. And So when he hears that Saul has disqualified himself as the uh, first king of Israel, naturally uh, Samuel is a little bit upset. And our text says that he was actually up all night crying out to God. And this part we didn't read uh, in our scripture reading. But if you read the rest of chapter 15, uh, it says that Samuel was actually mourning for Saul. Uh, So much so that God actually says to Samuel, how long are you going to keep mourning and crying for him? And so what we see in the heart of Samuel is, is sort of a fatherly figure that really, really deeply loved Saul. And so the reason why he's probably crying out to God all night uh, because of Saul's disqualification is because he's heartbroken. He's sad for his friend. furthermore, he's not exactly sure how to tell his friend that he's no longer the king of Israel. You know, one of the hardest things to do in life by far, one of the hardest things to do in life is to confront someone in a healthy way. By far, one of the hardest things to do. We're either too confrontational and in their face, or we're too cowardly. And so we don't want to talk with them because we w- we'd rather be liked. One of the hardest things to do, John Orberg says this, being right is actually a very hard burden to be able to carry gracefully and humbly. That's why nobody likes to sit next to the kid in class who's right all the time. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. You do know that you can win an argument and still lose the person, right? Spouses in particular, you know you can win an argument and yet you can still lose the person. Why is that? It's because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay, so this is why confrontation is such a difficult thing. Samuel loves Saul enough to lovingly confront him because he's lost his way. And in verse 12, it says this, Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, and he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. So despite coming from super humble roots, uh, by the time we get to chapter 15, after, again, tasting some money, fame, power, influential networks, Saul has clearly lost his way and is now suffering from narcissism. Anytime someone sets up a monument, whether it's a physical one or a digital one, in their own honor, chances are they suffer a little bit from narcissism. And what is narcissism? It is an overinflated view of the self. The word narcissism has its origins in the Greek mythological figure, Narcissus, who apparently was so handsome, he was completely self-absorbed with himself. So one day as, as Narcissus is walking along this, uh, the streets, sees a puddle of water. And Narcissus sees his reflection in the puddle of water. And he becomes so obsessed with his own image, he can't leave the puddle. He's like paralyzed looking at himself. And there he lay, not eating or drinking to his own death and demise. And this is what narcissism does to each and every one of us. When we have an overinflated view of ourselves, it eventually leads to our own death and demise. This is why Proverbs 16 says, It says this, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so a narcissist basically stands at the precipice of Mount Everest, and you know what they say? I'm awesome. That's what a narcissist looks like. They look at glory, and then they look at themselves, and they say that I uh, am the person that is awesome like what Harry Truman once said when he said that after reading the biographies of many great men and many great women, he began to notice a pattern with great people. And that pattern was this. The first victory that great men and women won was first a victory over themselves. Okay, so if there's one thing that I want you to remember from this sermon, it is this. Mistakes that humble us I know it doesn't feel like this, but mistakes that humble us are far greater than achievements that make us narcissistic, egotistical, and have hubris and pride. Mistakes that humble us are far greater than our accomplishments and achievements that make us proud and egotistical. I'll give you an example of this. So I know... Uh, Probably a bunch of you went to Paris Baguette or Starbucks or or, or Gregory's to get get coffee today, right? So let's say uh, your barista fills the coffee all the way to the brim, but you like a little splash of oat milk. So what do you do when a barista fills the coffee to the brim? You have to empty some of that coffee so that you can fill it with some of the oat milk. Similarly, when you are so full of yourself... When you are filled with yourself, it is impossible for God to fill you up with himself. And so what does God have to do? He has to empty you of your pride and your ego and and your hubris. He has to empty you by enrolling you again in the school of hard knocks so that he can fill you up with more of himself. This is, again, why, why I say that mistakes that humble us and empty us of our ego and pride is far greater than our accomplishments, which lead to our narcissism, arrogance, and pride. Saul was so full of himself that there was no more room for God. And as a result of that, it leads to his downfall. In verse 13 and 15, we read this. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, "'The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions.'" But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So let me just give you some context behind the text that we just read. Uh, The Amalekites were a nasty people. They were a ruthless and wicked and violent people that often attacked other people unprovoked. So when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, who, who was there to meet them? The Amalekites to kill them. So this tension between the Amalekites and the Israelites has been going on for like four or 500 years. Okay? To give you an idea of how nasty the Amalekites were, they even picked on the Philistines. Nobody picked on the Philistines. So a modern-day example, if I had to give one, of the Amalekites would be something like Al-Qaeda, nomadic tribal group that were nasty and, and mercilessless. And so after 400, 500 years of God's patience with these people, he no longer could withstand their injustice. And so his desire was to use Saul as his agent of justice against all the injustice of the Amalekites. And so he wanted, that, uh, he wanted Saul to destroy everything related and associated with the Amalekites. The problem was Saul did destroy most of it, but he kept the best cattle. Now, you might be thinking, okay, why is that a big deal? It's like luxury goods. Like, why is that a big deal? And furthermore, what does Saul say? He says that he wanted to save the best cattle to sacrifice to God. But as we take a deeper look at what Saul is saying here, this misdirection clothed in religiosity was really for his own self-interest. I'll I'll explain why. When they sacrificed animals uh, during this time, not all the meat was sacrificed. And so rather than throwing the meat away, you know what they would do? Barbecue. Barbecue. So when Saul and all the other men see, like, ribeye cat just walking along, they're like, we can't just throw this out. So what do they do? They, they keep it to sacrifice to God, but secretly they kind of know that they're going to get a barbecue out of this at the end. And you know that this is Saul's motive because what does he say? We kept the best cattle to sacrifice to your God. Not my God, but to your God. And so there's this distance that is there between Saul and God. So uh, I'll give you an example of this. So whenever people in our own community say things like, hey, when are you guys going to have an in-person service? I always stop and say, you mean when are we going to have an in-person service? When are you guys going to have a Good Friday service? I'm always like, you mean when are we, are we going to have a Good Friday service? And they're like, oh, yeah. So, th- so this is a question of ownership, proximity personalness here we see that Saul's relationship with God uh, was distant at best and my friends let me just tell you the more ground we lose with our relationship with God the more we lose ourselves and I do not want that to happen to any of us the more ground we gain with our relationship with God the more you find yourself Saul his distance with God was so great that he began to lose himself. And as a result of that, in verse 16 and 21, it says this. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Friends, partial obedience is still disobedience. Okay, let me give you an example of this. So the bane of my existence is getting my two girls to brush their teeth. It's like the bane of my existence. Uh, so what they do, so I, I put toothbrush on their, or, or a toothpaste on their toothbrush and I give it to them and I, I can't I can't contain them in the bathroom anymore. So they run out, like 10 minutes go by. I'm like, girls, you brush your teeth? And they're like, yeah, but but clearly they're playing, they don't even have their hands on the toothbrush. So I'm like, girls, come on, we gotta brush brush our teeth. And so they say, we did brush our teeth. And I say, just because you brush your teeth like once or twice, it doesn't mean that you actually brushed your teeth. Partial obedience, still disobedience. Okay? Delayed obedience, still disobedience. Grumpy obedience, still disobedience. You know what obedience is? Something that we see ad nauseum? Obedience is obeying right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. It is not obeying with delay. It is not obeying three quarters of the way. It is not obeying with a grumpy heart, but it is obeying right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And here we see that Saul did not obey fully, but only partially. And we know that because if there is one person he should have taken out, it was King Agag. But it, he is the one person that he spared. And so the question is why? Why King Agag of all people? Well, imagine the scene. Saul, Saul riding on a white horse back to Jerusalem with Agag with chains around his, his neck and his wrists, slowly walking behind him as the people were fawning and praising King Saul. Can you imagine a scene like that? I think he could, which is why he spared Agag for his own narcissistic pleasure and gain. He did obey, but he did not obey all the way. Partial obedience then, at the end of the day, is still disobedience. And so my question to you is this. Is there any area of your life where you are not fully obeying right now, but you're only partially obeying? Is there something in your life right now that you need to do right away, but you're delaying and putting it off? Is there something that you're doing in your life right now that you're doing with a grumpy heart instead of a happy heart? What are those things, and are you fully obeying? When Samuel sees Saul's partial obedience, he says to him in verse 22 and 23, but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The phrase to obey is better than sacrifice is one of the most popular phrases in the Bible. But what in the world does it even mean? So to go back to uh, my girls again. So let's say I tell them, girls, you got to brush your teeth did you brush your teeth? And they say, no, but we cleaned our room. Like, like what is that? That's, that's, they're, not, they're not listening. They're not obeying. But they're talking about the other sacrifices that they made. And oftentimes we do this. Instead of listening to what God is trying to tell us, we justify what we're doing with excuses by saying, but we're doing this and we're doing that. And here what God is trying to say through Samuel is this. To obey and to listen to what I'm saying is better than all the other sacrifices that you're making. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says if you're at church but you have beef with someone, leave church. Exit out of here. Go reconcile with them and then come back. To obey is better than this sacrifice that you are making right now. What are some things in your life you should be doing or should not be doing that you are trying to justify and excuse for yourself? Beth Moore says, do the right thing even if it's late. It's not too late. Do the right thing even if it will be a mess. Do the right thing even if you'll lose the approval of those you think you need. This is integrity, doing the right thing thing, whatever the even ifs, God will handle the consequences. Or to put it another way, very simply, integrity is doing the right thing no matter the consequences. No matter the consequences. And so something that I think can be helpful for us, although very piercing for us, are some questions that can help us flesh some of the things that we're doing that we might not even be aware of. And this comes from Tim Challies. A bunch of people were taking photos of this from the first service. So If you want to do that, you can do that as well. But I think just some good diagnostic questions for all of us. So number one, are there any parts of your life you deliberately hide from others? What are they? Number two, are there any ongoing sins in your life that would bring shame to you, your family, and church if they were made public? Number three, do you know what sins you are particularly prone to, and do you have measures in your life to guard against these temptations? Number four, if the people around you heard charges against you, would their reaction be, that's impossible, or would it be, yeah, that's not so surprising? What does their potential response say about the life you're living now? Number five. Would you say you have a good rep or iffy rep? And number six, how often do you repent of your sins and why? Um, These questions, again, are very helpful. But I also am very aware that these kinds of questions are very piercing. And I'm assuming that there might be some of us in this room, as we even read through these questions, we're thinking to ourselves, there is that one thing. And I don't want anyone to know about it. And if it did come out to light, I would be so, so deeply ashamed. I never want this to come out of the closet. And if that's you, I want you to know that it's okay. Okay? Whatever that might be, it's okay. Okay? But the most important thing is that as you think about those things, we have to be honest about what's taking place. So if I can give some encouragement to you, um, and this is what the gospel is all about, okay, the heart of our faith. When you take a look at the bookends of Saul's life and Jesus' life, they're very similar. Saul comes from no-name town, Jesus, no-name town. Saul begins his public ministry at the age of 30. Jesus begins his public ministry at the age of 30. Saul dies a very tragic death. Jesus also dies a very tragic death. Bookends of their life, Very, very similar. However, Saul's life started well, but he did not finish well. Jesus' life started well, but he also finished it well as well. So what is the distinction? I think that if there is one narrative that our culture loves more than an underdog story of a hero rising, I think if there is one narrative we love more than that, it is the narrative of a train wreck of a hero falling. That's the one narrative we love more, and I think the reason for that is it makes us feel a little bit better about our own average lives when we see something like that. It makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. So we love the idea of heroes also falling. So when you take a look at Jesus' life, people praised and worshipped him, put him on a pedestal, gave him a platform, but those same people also killed him as well. They wanted to see the hero fall, who was getting all this notoriety, press, and fame. The difference, however, is this. Jesus wanted to fall. He wanted to die. He wanted to be finished this way with a tragic death. In fact, even as he is hanging on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. What is finished? Some some objective, task, goal, mission. He did something while he was hanging on the cross. And what was that thing that he did? Dying for our partial obedience our fragmented and compartmentalized lives. He died for that secret thing that we don't want anyone to find out about. He died for all those demons in our closet, and he did it so he could be, he could wipe those things clean, and instead of throwing stones at us, you know what he does? He takes our chin, and he lifts it up, and he says, it's okay. It's okay. I know. I see it. But it's okay. And when you truly understand the gospel and his love for you, it doesn't prompt fear so much as it prompts love. Okay, so let me just close with this example. So <clears throat> to use my girls again, hypothetical example because they never fight. But let's just say they fight. And I, and I say to my oldest, Logan, Lo, did you, did you hit Hayden? No. Lo. Just tell me the truth. If you tell me the truth, I'm not gonna be upset. But if you hide the truth, then I will be upset. So I want you to know you can tell me the truth. I'm not gonna be angry, okay? Okay, fine, I hit her. But she da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da for like the next 10 minutes. And I say, okay, thank you for telling me the truth, but we are not a hitting family. We are hugging and kissing and all that kind of family, okay? Okay, she starts crying, and then she'll give me a hug, and then she'll hug her sister, and they they hug it out, right? If my daughter's response was, I messed up, dad's going to kill me, what is that? Fear-based repentance. However, if her response is, I messed up, I need to call dad, that's grace-based repentance. Oftentimes, we have a fear based repentance. I messed up. He's going to kill me. But I want you to know that he is the most loving father of all. And so what do we need to do? We just need to come to him with the truth. And he's not going to be upset. He's not going to throw stones at you. And he's going to say, it's okay. Okay. And there's one other application uh, that I can close with. As we bring those things to God, I also want you to bring those things to other people. Whatever that might be, that thing might be, you cannot. your shoulders are not broad enough to handle it by yourself. This is why you feel the crushing weight of whatever that thing might be. So here's one last tip that we can close with. As you bring those things to God, bring it to one another, but not just to anyone. Here's one, one quick tip. Be honest with everyone. Be transparent with a few. We reject the idea that authenticity means that you have to be transparent with everyone. You do not. If you can get to that place, great. But most of us, when we're wrestling with secret dark things, it's probably not the wisest idea to be transparent with everyone. Be honest with everyone, but be transparent with the few. Do you have a few people in your life that you, you trust? They don't have stones in their hands so much as love and hugs. Do you have those people in your life? If you don't, Talk with me. I'll find some amazing people in our community that would love to help you. Our staff is here to help you. You don't have to bear that thing by yourself because if you keep repressing it, it will crush you. And we want you to flourish and we don't want you to uh, be crippled by that weight that uh, you're bearing by yourself. So in closing, our goal is not just to start well, but our goal is to finish well. How do we finish well? Our private life has to match our public life. And we need to be able to bring these things to God who comes with us with a Father's love. And we also need to bring these things for one another. My heart's desire for every one of us is that we finish whatever, however many chapters God gives to us, that we finish this race very well. Let's pray for us. God, as we take a look at the biography of King Saul, uh, we do not come with eyes of superiority. If, If anything, we come with eyes of empathy because his story could easily be our story, easily. And so, God, we come before you with much trepidation and fear because we know ourselves and we know what we're capable of. And so we cling all the more tightly to you We come before you in proximity and a desire to become more like you. We're praying that we can come before you with whatever demons we have in our closet because you love us. And we're praying, Father, that we would finish this race well as ambassadors of your name. In your name I pray. Amen.